This story should also be really familiar, but that doesn't mean that it's not important to hear again. The story starts with sin. Now, usually when I hear the word sin, my first thought is, sin is the bad things I do. But the way Paul talks about sin in these chapters is a very different picture of sin. In Romans, sin is this active agent, an entity that moves through the world as an oppressive tyrant and a destroying marauder. Paul uses verbs to describe sin. Here are some of them. Sin ruled over all people and brought them to death. Sin aroused all kinds of evil desires. Sin took advantage of the law. Sin deceived me. Sin used God's commands to kill me. Sin used what was good to bring about condemnation to death. Sin uses God's commands for its own evil purposes. And because sin is doing all these things and we are caught under it, there's a terrible fallout that Paul describes. Sin breaks our friendship with God. It enslaves us. It masters us, holds us captive, controls us. It brings death. It makes us fearful. It makes us miserable. It condemns us and curses us. And sin has put the whole world under bondage and pain and growing. Does this kind of sin sound like the bad choices that I make? Not really. In this, we see that sin isn't only something that we do, but something that has caged us and we cannot escape from. In this description, we are not so much choosing sin as we have been completely overwhelmed by it, like getting thrown into a tsunami. What I'm not saying is that we don't choose sin at all or that we don't have responsibility for sin. Because yes, there is an element of sin that we choose, and yes, we have personal responsibility. But sin is also something so much bigger than us and our choices. Sin is so strong we can't opt out of it or hit unsubscribe. Like addicts, we keep poisoning ourselves with it. We're like sailors lost at sea, we keep drinking the salt water even though it's killing us. Not only that, but Paul says that under the sway of sin, we are actively hostile to God. We are enemies of him, hating him, rebelling against him, rejecting him, raving against him. We're bound and gagged by sin, tossed into the dungeon, rotting on death row, and still plotting God's overthrow. This is the reality of the whole world, all people, all creation. Which again, when I think about this, actually makes our position under sin seem way more helpless. If I only think of sin as a series of bad choices and wrong actions, then somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm tempted to think, ah, well, I can probably clear this up if I just make better decisions. If I reduce my sin to a decision-making process, I can delude myself into thinking I can manage sin on my own. But if sin is actually an overpowering force that has me trapped, then thinking I can somehow fix this on my own is like thinking I can saw my way out of prison bars with dental floss. This is a force so much bigger than me. I'm on death row and I need rescue. And that's exactly where Paul takes the next part of this story. While he's telling the story of the destruction of sin, he keeps contrasting that with the life that comes through, through Jesus. He tells us that, indeed, the good news is a rescuer has come. Chapter 8, verse 3. 
God sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus comes down into the dungeon with us, even though we are his sworn enemies, and breaks us out in a revolt of slaves against a tyrant. He defeats death by death, but then he doesn't stay dead. After all, if the leader of a revolution dies, what happens to the revolution? The revolution dies too. But Jesus lived. He led the revolt, freed us, defeated sin, lived so that we could live. Chapter 6, verse 9. Christ was raised from the dead, and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Back up to chapter 6, verse 7. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also will live with him. What comes through Jesus and this new life in him? Just as Paul gives us a devastating list of the way that sin tortures us, he lists gift after gift that comes through Christ. And there are way more examples of the blessings of Christ than there are of the curses of sin. Here's some of them. We have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. Our friendship with God is restored. God fills our hearts with his love, gives us the gifts of righteousness and forgiveness. We belong to God, are alive in him, united with him, no longer slaves to sin. Death has lost its power. Instead, we live in overwhelming victory and freedom under the rule of grace. We are unashamed, unafraid. We have the same resurrecting spirit in us who is in Jesus, and this spirit prays for us, helps us in our weakness, gives us hope, makes us holy. We are God's children, and we cannot be separated from God's love. No circumstance or experience means that God has stopped loving us. So this is Paul's juxtaposition. The world of sin, sickness, despair, hopelessness, bondage, the world of Jesus, freedom, peace, forgiveness, reconciliation. We have been moved from the first world into the second. We have been brought from death to life. And this is why we are together, sisters and brothers. This is the commonality that has brought us into the same room, sitting side by side. All our divisions, the weak and the strong, the divisions that we have today in the church, all crumble under this shared adoption into God's family. Okay, but hold up a minute. This is wonderful news and it's brought us together, but why are things still so stinking hard? Why are we struggling against division? Why do we have endless versions of weak and strong instead of gloriously living in unity now? So Paul wraps up these these, uh, four chapters by exploring the paradox of what theologians call the now and the not yet. This is the idea that in King Jesus, God's kingdom has been announced and inaugurated but at the same time, it has not been brought fully to completion. As in, the kingdom of God is established and begun, but the kingdom of God has not reached its final destination. It is a present reality and a future reality. Jesus himself says both, the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is near. We are in the in-between phase, the now and the not yet. Maybe this picture will help. Uh, Because I used a sports analogy, I also got to use a Lord of the Rings analogy because it seems like you can't preach without one or the other of those. So at the end of the Lord of the Rings, um, there's this magnificent scene where the evil 
Sauron is, is defeated, and his tower comes crashing down, and all the gates fall down, and there's a volcano, and it erupts, and all the evil orcs and everybody goes running, and the ground opens up, and it swallows them, and it's really triumphant, and a few scenes later, they have Aragorn, who's the king, they have a coronation ceremony for him, and everybody's there, and it's like, woohoo, it's a, a great big celebration. But if you read the books, there's a part that the movie left out. And when the four hobbits who have been part of this journey of defeating Sauron get back to their home, they find that their home is still under the darkness and tyranny that came through Sauron. There are all these people in their hometown who are caught up in prison. There's thugs who are running the town. And it's just a mess. And it's confusing because does this mean that Sauron wasn't defeated? No, he was destroyed, the king was installed, but that darkness had spread all across the land. And so part of what these four characters had to do is they had to clean up those last bits of darkness. And that's what we're doing too. And we have our rightful king installed on the throne and ultimately death and sin have been defeated, but we're still, we're still cleaning them out, still kicking them out. We are now participating in the reconstruction that follows a war, the restoration of what has been broken, what N.T. Wright calls mopping up operations, which T.C. just muttered under his breath. <laughs> That's why we have still trouble and persecution, hunger, danger, death, fears, worries. Sin is still present. But even though we've seen the terrible presence of sin and the things it can do, Paul brings these four chapters to a grand finale by proclaiming what sin cannot do. What's the one thing sin cannot do? Separate us from the love of God. Louder. Separate us from the love of God. Amen. It doesn't matter what comes our way, sin cannot separate us from the love of God. The calamity, the trouble, the strife, the war, because despite all its power, sin lost. You know those you had one job memes? Well, sin, you had one job. Your one job was to keep us separate from God, and you weren't strong enough. Instead, God pulled off a brilliant rescue plan that the world never saw coming. Liberation took place. Restoration took place. Freedom came for the captives. Before, we didn't have a choice. Now we do. Before, we were his enemies. Now we are his children. Before, we were under obligation to sin. Now we are not. Before we were under death, now we are under life. Amen. This message, Paul says in these four chapters, is what brought us together in the first place, the movement from death to life. And now we're one, one in Jesus, one together, one body. We must tell ourselves these truths over and over and over. Every day we need to be reminded of these things. So before we leave today, I want to do something a little bit different. I want us to hear these words about what Christ has done and who we are in him in full force. I want to push these words just a little deeper into our hearts. Um, we mentioned that when this letter first came to Rome, Paul sent uh, Phoebe to read it aloud to the groups. Um, and so they were sitting listening to all of this letter read. So I'm going to ask Libby to come up, and like Phoebe, we want to speak these four chapters out loud to you. So this is a little different than maybe we're used to, um, but I want you to listen and soak and absorb this up. There's going to be a video playing behind on the screen with images of nature, so you can watch that or you can close your eyes, but uh, 
listen up because we've got some good news for you. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not be to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Christ Jesus. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads us to being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation to everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well then, should we keep on sinning so God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. 
since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and we were buried with Christ in baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but you now have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves of sin. But now you wholeheartedly obey his teaching he has given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin. And you have become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now, you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only when a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. 
When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it, and we're no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting was wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned that command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy. And its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate, but if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives within me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do right. But I can't. I want to do good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body these sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful desire, but instead follow the spirit. 
Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the spirit think about things that please the spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those that do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our Spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something that we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that words that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his Son, so that his Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, 
He gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or are in danger, or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day and are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above. Or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Jesus, thank you so much for bringing us from death to life. Help us to remember this. Help us to walk in this. Help us to know this in the deepest part of our hearts. In your name, amen.